Life podcast. We truly hope you'll be inspired and challenged today. Now, let's dive into this message with the family at Pleasant Ridge. All right, we're going to be here picking back up here in Colossians chapter number four. And uh, we're going to be looking at uh, verse, 17, or verse 7 all the way down through the end of the chapter here uh, this morning. And we're going to do quite a bit of jumping around in these verses here because I think it'll give us the overall big picture of uh, what, uh, what Paul is, uh, is saying here. And you know, it's quite common for us to read things at the end of some of these letters or even when you kind of get into some of the genealogies and things like that to kind of just skim over that kind of stuff, uh, primarily because it might be about uh, people that we know little or really nothing about. Um, Sometimes we think it eh, just really doesn't apply, you know, because these are just kind of like, you know, hey, tell this person I said hi, see you later with this person, whatever. Uh, But there's actually some really good stuff here. Uh, some good reminders for us as believers about the importance of the body of Christ. And I find it really interesting how Paul, uh, pr- before this, he was looking outside of the body, right? And he's reminding us to go and make disciples, to walk in wisdom to those that are outside, right? Those without Christ. And then he turns his focus inside the body of Christ, and he starts making mention of some of these people here, that we're going to look at, and there's some reminders here about how we as believers uh, need to be functioning together as the body of Christ, uh, serving one another by using our spiritual gifts. Now, looking forward, after we finish up Colossians, um, we're going to be working through uh, some of those spiritual gift things that uh, we had uh, talked about, we the elders had talked about. And uh, we really want to uh, define what those spiritual gifts are, and we want to help you discover what your spiritual gifts are, so that way you can actually serve in the body of Christ using what God has gifted you with. And we're going to look primarily at uh, four passages. Uh, There's uh, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, um, Ephesians 4, and also 1 Peter 4 that we'll uh, dig into uh, for some of those that... But our passage this morning is really going to help us see these normal individuals that were part of the body of Christ and how they were used within the body. And, how, and really, it should be an encouragement to us to know that we that are saved, we know Christ is our Savior, God has placed us within the body, and we are supposed to be serving the body as well. And so here's what I'd like for you to take away with you today. If I know Christ, I can serve. Am I? If I know Christ, I can serve. Am I? So let's take note of a few things here, okay? First of all, number one, God uses the whole church to serve, not just one person. God uses the whole church to serve not just one person. Now, I said we're going to be uh, jumping around in some of these uh, verses here, and uh, so some of them are kind of broken up here. And often I think when we think of the church, we tend to think that everything that is done in the church is usually done by one individual, or uh, 
one person that is in charge or a person that uh, is basically tasked to do everything. But that is not New Testament Christianity. That is not the way that God has designed for the church supposed to function together. Over and over you find that the church body is made up of individuals that are called to care for and to serve one another. And I believe within the context uh, here, as we look at this, Paul is talking about serving within the context of the local church, the body of Christ, because he's talking directly to this church at Colossae, and he's saying, look, you guys are supposed to serve one another here, and that's what you should be doing. So I believe that Paul here, he wasn't some super senior pastor. Uh, He wasn't the lone professional, although we do see a lot about Paul, but he's encouraging and reminding these believers and reminding us as well that we are all called to serve within the local church. And I believe that this is a major problem within American Christianity today. We've bought into the lie that in order to serve in ministry, we must have some sort of degree or uh, some cer- only certain people can only do certain types of things. Uh, that's not what you find in New Testament Christianity. You don't find people with degrees serving in a church. Uh, In fact, it's interesting, like Paul, you know, he'd go and he'd plant these churches and then he'd say, okay, guys, find the elders, find the deacons. They weren't like, well, hey, we better call up the Christian schools and man, we better get on the phone and we got to find somebody who's been in ministry for X amount of years. No, you find faithful men who can actually execute that office within the context of the local church already that can actually be an example to the believers. And that's the way ministry should work within uh, the local church. Now, notice all the people that God used within this church that Paul makes mention of, okay? First, we find this guy, Tychicus, right? This is in uh, verse number 7. Paul calls him our beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant or bondservant. Maybe one of your translations reads that. Who was this man? Well, we learn about him in Acts chapter 20, verse number 4. He was a Gentile from Asia Minor who had traveled with Paul at the close of his third missionary journey. He was obviously trustworthy since Paul sent the letters of Ephesians, Colossians, and probably Philemon back to Asia with him. And he may have been sent to relieve Titus in Crete so that Titus could join Paul for a while, is what we see in Titus chapter 3, verse number 12. Later, as Paul faced the end of his life in prison in Rome, he sent Tychicus to Ephesus in Rome, and he sent and he took over for Timothy so that Timothy could leave to join Paul, as what we see in 2 Timothy 4.12 and also 2 Timothy 4.21. Then we see this other man, Onesimus. Who is this guy? Verse number 9. Well, he accompanied Tychicus on this trip, and he was a runaway slave. We talked a little bit about him before. And uh, this runaway slave was a, was a guy that Paul actually led to Christ while he was in prison. Uh, Paul was now sending him back to his master Philemon, but he doesn't mention that fact in this public letter to the church. We read about it in the letter uh, to Philemon. 
Um, and if it hadn't been for the private correspondence to Philemon, which later, which later became public, we wouldn't know that Onesimus really was a slave, let alone a runaway. Paul calls him in verse number 9, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. So he's part of this church. Another, then we see this uh, next man. Look at verse number 10. Okay, this is, his name is Aristarchus. Paul calls him my fellow prisoner. We also see in Philemon verse 23 and verse 24 that uh, was written about the same time that Colossians was written. Paul calls Aristarchus a fellow worker in Philemon. Paul also mentions Epaphras in verse number 12, if you see that. And he is noted as a worker, but we also see in Philemon, Paul also calls him his fellow prisoner. So what does that tell us, right? These guys were in prison with Paul. And, and they're here from this church. I mean, these are guys that are part of the body of Christ, and they're serving together with Paul. This is not just a one-man show. These are all together people that were part of this church. It may be that the two men were in the same living quarters as Paul while he was in prison, or perhaps uh, they might have been arrested uh, for their own preaching activities and in some other prison. Uh, we do know that in Acts 19.29 tells us that Aristarchus, along with some others, were grabbed by an angry mob in the city of Ephesus because of their preaching and were dragged into the arena during the riot there. Can you imagine that? I mean, here's these guys faithfully serving Christ. They're proclaiming Christ. And then they get grabbed and dragged into the arena because they're proclaiming Christ. I mean, Paul says, hey, you guys are my fellow workers. You're my fellow prisoners. We're in this together. We're all serving Christ together. Aristarchus, from what we know, was a Jewish believer. Uh, verse number 11 tells us that he was one of the only men from the circumcision. So Aristarchus was Jewish born. He studied in the ways of the Jews. But then he had became what we know as a Messianic Jew by believing in the gospel. The guy, uh, Doug Carmel, that's going to be coming and doing our, uh, the uh, Seder mill, he is a Messianic Jew. He grew up Jewish. He studied under the uh, Jewish uh, uh, Torah and all that kind of stuff. And then he came to know Christ. Um, so from what we know about Aristarchus, he was uh, like that as well. Uh, from what we know, Aristarchus, he might have been from Thessalonica. From what Acts 24 tells us, that Aristarchus was one of the other men who traveled with Paul when he took the financial gift to the needy saints in Jerusalem. We know that he spent quite a bit of time with Paul because he began the journey with Paul from Caesarea to Rome, as what Acts 27.2 tells us. And so he may have gone through the shipwreck even with Paul when Paul was uh, in that uh, shipwreck. Then we see this other guy. His name is Mark. Look at verse number 10. We learn about him that he was a cousin of Barnabas. And it's surprising but encouraging to see him on Paul's team here. You say, why? Well, in Acts chapter 13, 13, it records for us a very interesting that happened between Paul and Barnabas. Mark was really part of that dynamic duo. So you had Paul and you had Barnabas and they're going out, they're proclaiming Christ and Mark is kind of tagging along with that. Well, what ends up happening is Mark ends up deserting. He doesn't do what he's supposed to be doing. And Paul is like, that's it. 
I'm done with this guy. I am not going to put up with his nonsense. And he's like, I'm not taking him with me. But Barnabas is like, come on, Paul, please, 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 come on. Let's just take him, all right? Let's just, let, let's just look past this. Let's go on. And Paul's like, no. And the Bible records for us that there was a sharp division between Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas ends up taking Mark with him. And Paul then ends up taking Timothy. But then later on, we find here Paul now actually talking again about Mark. And listen to what he has to say about Mark. He tells him this. He says, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, and he says that he is useful. He's useful to me. So it's really interesting that we see that. Paul here, 12 years later, tells the Colossians to welcome Mark without reservation. Then we have this other man now, Jesus, called Justice in verse number 11. What's written here is all we know about him. He was a Jew from Paul, whom Paul calls a fellow worker for the kingdom of God. And along with the other two Jews, Mark and Aristarchus, Paul says that, that Jesus' justice here had been an encouragement to him. Then we see this man by the name of Epaphras, verse number 12. We've already met him, if you can remember uh, Paul making mention of him back in uh, Colossians uh, 1, uh, 7 and 8. He said, just as you learn from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirits. Um, he was probably converted and discipled during Paul's Extended stay in Ephesus is what's recorded for us in Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. He then returned to his hometown of Colossae and planted the church there. And probably he even planted the neighboring churches in Laodicea and Hierapolis. And when problems arose with false teachers, we find that Epaphras went to Rome to get counsel from Paul, who calls him in verse number 12, a servant of Jesus Christ. And then Paul commends him for his prayers and concern for uh, these three churches in uh, Colossae and also Laodicea and Hierapolis. Then Paul names Luke. Look at verse number 14. He is the beloved physician. It is only here that we learn that Luke was actually a doctor. From what we know, Luke was a Gentile because in this passage, Aristarchus, Mark, and uh, Jesus or Justice were the only guys that were from the circumcision. And Luke was the only Gentile author in the New Testament, writing almost one quarter of it. He wrote the gospel according to Luke and also the book of, Lack, of Acts. He accompanied Paul on some of his missionary journeys, including his shipwreck on the way to Rome. He was the only worker with Paul near the end of his second imprisonment as Paul faced his execution by writing in 2 Timothy 4.11, Luke alone is with me. Then we have this man named Demas, verse number 14. Now it's interesting that Paul says nothing to commend him. He just mentions his name, Demas. In contrast with the others, we see these other guys, he's saying, look, these guys, faithful servants, these guys, their fellow workers, this is what they've done, and then Paul just mentions Demas. And we do find some other things, though, that were written about Demas. For example, in Philemon, verse 24, written just before Colossians was written, Paul calls him a fellow worker in Philemon, 
But here he says nothing about Demas. In 2 Timothy 4.10, he reports about Demas. He says this about Demas. Sadly, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, Paul, probably when he was writing this letter to uh, the, the, the believers here at Colossae, chances are there was already probably some signs of what was going on in Demas's life. And sometimes that does happen, right? We see people and, and they don't just automatically already just, right? There's usually signs of things that are happening before they head down that road. And Paul probably was already seeing some of those signs, and so he just mentions his name here. In addition to these with Paul in Rome, there are those in the churches at Colossae and Laodicea. Then he mentions, notice this, Nympha, verse number 15, and to Nympha and the church in her house. This uh, person here hosted the church in their home. Now, we're not actually sure whether this was actually a man or a woman. Uh, Some translators see it as it was a man. Some of them see it as a woman. Now, I do believe that it was a woman because uh, we see other instances of this. For example, Lydia, uh, who basically opened her home for the church to meet there. And so I do believe that uh, Nympha was a woman. But that's just my opinion. It really doesn't matter. But uh, he also mentions here Archippus. Look at verse number 17. He was probably the son of Philemon. He's mentioned in Philemon verse number 2. He may have been one of the elders uh, in this church at Colossae and could have been helping during Epaphras' absence. When Epaphras went to go see Paul in prison, um, and it's what we read there in uh, the book of Colossians, and Paul here gently exhorts him to do his ministry. See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. So looking at all these individuals, it's, it's certain that Paul really wasn't the only one that was serving. It was everybody. Everybody in that church was a part of serving the Lord, doing something Uh, whether it was working together to proclaim Christ, whether it was edifying one another in the Lord, using their spiritual gifts, Paul makes it very clear that everybody was a part of that. And that's the way that it must be. God has gifted every member of the body of Christ, and he expects us to use our gifts to serve him. Uh, We see that clearly laid out for us in Romans 12.3, 1 Corinthians 12.7, Ephesians 4.7, 1 Peter 4.10. So figure out how God wants you to serve him and get involved by serving the body of Christ. One of the things that uh, we as the elders have, have talked about this, that you know, if there is something here that you want to be a part of or a ministry that you're like, hey, you know, we're not really doing this. We'd love to do this, okay? We, the elders, are responsible to equip you to actually be able to do that ministry. And that's really what we need to be doing. And so we want to encourage you to do that. And so if God has gifted you in a certain way or a certain thing, we want to equip you so that way you can fulfill that ministry that God has equipped you for. And so you need to be a part of that. So God uses the whole church to serve, not just one person. Let's look at the second thing here. I can serve regardless of my background. 
Oftentimes we might think that because of our diversity that 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 will hinder us from serving in the body or that I don't fit or I couldn't get along with others in the body that are not like me. Take a look at our text here. Paul mentions three men, Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus or Justice, who were his fellow, who were his only fellow workers from the circumcision. This meant that they were Jews. From that, we can gather that the others mentioned were Gentiles, and between these two groups, there was an extreme hostility in the first century. But in Christ, it was erased. So you have differences in ethnic and cultural backgrounds now. And they're coming together for one purpose, and that is to serve Christ. And so this tells us something that we as believers in Christ, maybe we've had different backgrounds. Maybe there might be some differences in ethnic backgrounds. There might be some differences in cultural backgrounds. But none of that should matter. Because we are all one in Jesus Christ. And we can all serve Christ. Paul mentions men from opposite ends of the professional spectrum also. Look, he says, Luke the physician and Onesimus the slave. You have two very diverse ends here. One guy's a doctor, the other guy's a slave. But yet they still come together and they serve Christ together. Paul instructs the church to have his letter read to the entire congregation, as what he says here in verse number 16. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So it was a really a diverse group that included Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free and educated and really uneducated people as well. In Colossians 3.11, we're reminded where Paul says that in the one new man, the church, right, in Christ, there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and an uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. You see, part of the glory of the church is that it is made up of these different types of individuals and peoples from all kinds of different parts of the backgrounds. And yet God has brought all of them together in Christ so that that way we can serve. And that's all done because of the gospel. In their book called The Compelling Community, written by Mark Denver and Jamie Dunlop, they put forth the statement that churches often create impediments to displaying our gospel-centered diversity by grouping people based on natural similarities. We organize age-graded Sunday school classes, small groups based on shared stages in life, singles, young marrieds, mothers of children, seniors, etc., 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 men's and women's groups. We design services for those who prefer traditional music and those who like contemporary music. But the danger of this approach, they argue, is that it obscures the supernatural diversity that the gospel produces. Do you understand why it's so important that we function together as a body of Christ? We never say to our body, hand, I have no need of you, foot, I have no need of you, eye, I have no need of you. We need it all. We need those that are young and those that are old, those that that are educated and those that are uneducated. We need those from different backgrounds of life because all of us, God has brought all of us together together to function together as a whole. 
And so God uses everybody in the body of Christ to serve. I encourage you to befriend people who come to this church toward whom you would not naturally gravitate. On Sunday mornings, don't just sit in your chair and wait for somebody to come up to you. Right? Look for people. Look for those who you may not have things in common with. Ask them how you can pray for them and then pray for them. Go through our church directory. Pick an individual or family and have them over for dinner or meet up for somewhere else. Share your stories of how you came to know Christ. On Sundays, deliberately look for people who are not your type and welcome them. In heaven, you will be with people from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. And so you might as well get to know them here and now, right? Know the body of Christ. Here's the third thing. Serve because you're part of the family. I can't overemphasize the importance of the fact that if you know Christ, then you are part of the family. Paul heavily emphasizes this as well. Notice how the gospel has changed their relationships. Here's Paul, a once zealous Jew who hated Gentiles, is now calling Tychicus, who is a Gentile what? Our beloved brother. You see how the gospel has changed his life? He calls the converted slave, Onesimus, a beloved brother. Verse 15, he asks the Colossian believers to greet the brothers at Laodicea. These terms show us that the church is the family of God, and this is reinforced to us over and over in the New Testament by the truth that we who believe in Christ are born again by the Spirit of God. John 3, 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. 1 Peter 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And in Romans 8.15, the Bible says that we are adopted into God's family. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So we are brothers and sisters in the Lord. Today, we tend to think of the church as a building. I go to church at 15510 County Road 22, right? You know, you know, it's that little church that's on the hill. You know, you just come right over the hill. It's that country church just sitting right over there. Or we hear things, kids, don't run in the church. This building is not the church. We're the church. We're the body of Christ. Kids shouldn't run in, in any building because it's rude and also, you're going to run into somebody and hurt them. Okay? Don't try to make it all uh, holy by saying, this is God's house. Don't run in church. No, don't run in this building because it's rude. Okay? Verse 15, Paul tells us about this church that met in the home of Nympha. Philemon also hosted a church in his house in Colossae, as we see in Philemon 2. We also see churches being hosted in other homes and other places of Scripture. For example, Romans 16.5, Romans 16.23, 1 Corinthians 16.19. So churches did not own buildings to meet in until the middle of the 3rd century. Now this is not to argue that we should go back to meeting exclusively into homes. There's pros and cons for that. 
But the, the, the thing is, is the fact that we are the body of Christ. And when we come together, we are meeting together. And we just happen to be meeting in this building. Okay? We're the church. And so we need to remember, serve, because we are part of the family. Here's the fourth thing. Serve because you are a servant of Jesus Christ. Notice here, Paul refers to Tychicus, verse 7, as a faithful minister and fellow servant or bondservant of the Lord. Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus, Justice are as what verse number 11 says, fellow workers for the kingdom of God. Epaphras was verse number 12. He says, a servant or a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Uh, Archippus here, interesting, verse number 7, or 17, we see him that he did not choose the ministry as a career, but rather he was drafted. <laughs> he says, see that you fulfill the ministry that has been given to you. You were drafted. Do it. None of these workers were serving Paul. They, along with him, were all servants and slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're reminded of what Paul wrote in Colossians 3.24. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And this is true of every person who knows Christ and serves him. You serve Christ. We should be serving Christ. That sounds pretty basic, doesn't it? But I think it's often overlooked by so many. If you serve in any capacity in this church, you shouldn't be doing it to serve any of us elders. You're serving Christ. Serve Christ. You're not doing it for us. Serve Christ. And if you are doing it for us, you're doing it for the wrong motive, the wrong reason. Serve Christ, not us. It is Christ is the one who bought you with his blood. And so you serve him as your master. So the church is not a one-man show, but a group effort. And it consists of men and women from different racial and socioeconomic backgrounds. The church is the family of God. And every member is a servant or slave of Jesus. This is the fifth thing. Serve even though the body is not perfect. Many times we can become discouraged to serving because we become disappointed by others. There's a sober dose of reality in Paul's final greetings here. First, we see encouragement with Mark, who started by failing, right? And, and Paul's like, I'm done with him. But ended faithfully. At first, he bailed out on Paul, but now he's at Paul's side in Rome. During Paul's final imprisonment, he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.11, only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. But then there's this guy named Demas, a fellow worker alongside Mark, Aristarchus and Luke. And Paul makes mention of this in Philemon 24. He said he loved this present world, and he ends up deserting them. If Paul could look into the future, he would have known that the church of Laodicea which seemed to be healthy in his day, just 30 years later would be so self-sufficient and lukewarm that the Lord threatened to spew them out of his mouth as he did in Revelation 3, verses 14 through 22. You say, what's the point? The point is this. If you're serving the Lord, don't be surprised if some of your fellow believers in Christ fail. Bail out. Do something wrong to hurt you. Don't be surprised by that. It happened to Paul. 
And that is where you've got to keep your eyes on Christ, not men. You're serving Christ, not men. And so serve even though the body is not perfect. You must keep your eyes on Christ, not people. Remember that the church is not perfect yet. It's not. It's made up of sinners. And we do things, we act like toddlers, don't we? He hit me. He said this about me. I'm going to go tell. Right? We're like little toddlers running around here. Grow up, mature, right? That's what we need to do. And know that the body of Christ is maturing and it's growing up in the Lord. If I can remind you what Ephesians 5, 25 through 27 says, it says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Our Lord Jesus Christ is sanctifying the church through the water of the word, through the washing of the word of God. And he's maturing us and he's sanctifying us so that one day we might be presented to him in splendor without spot or wrinkle, just like a bride coming down, getting ready to be married. So the church is not perfect yet. And so you need to continue to serve even though you might see some imperfections. Let's pray together. If you're interested in more information about our church or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, visit our website at lifeattheridge.church.